Reconstructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. What's up, y'all? Uh, Joe Salant, War Room, Boots on the Ground. Uh, this is the uh, third episode, also going live on Facebook. I preached a sermon this last weekend for a, a group of charismatic believers up in uh, up in the Boston area. It was a wonderful time. And it was on the Full Orb Gospel, and it was dedicated to the brothers and sisters, the abolitionists who turned Seattle on its head, Acts 17, 6 style, uh, this past week. And the reason they turned Seattle on its head is because they brought the full orb gospel of the kingdom of God to bear against the evil of our age, uh, abortion, child sacrifice. But their preaching of the gospel was a lot different than what is considered the preaching of the gospel in American culture, in American church culture. And so I explained that in the sermon over this past weekend and dedicated the sermon to the brothers and sisters uh, who flipped Seattle on its head just with a normative New Testament full gospel victory approach um, that is just utterly offensive to the kingdom of man. And so what I wanted to do was, I've been getting some requests, what I wanted to do is I wanted to actually put that kind of sermon in more of a uh, detailed format uh, for this Boots on the Ground segment of War Room. This is the third episode of Boots on the Ground, so this uh, you can consider a, a sermon or an exhortation uh, or whatever the case may be. And I'll try to interact as much as possible with the live audience. Uh, do bear with me. The... Um, I, I do have two sleeping children in the room, and one of them I have on a, a tr watching dinosaurs on an iPad. So let's see if this setup uh, uh, holds up uh, for the next uh, 30 minutes or so. Uh, appreciate that, Randy. Um, and uh, so we'll see. We'll see if we can make it all the way through. Uh, anyway, War Room Boots on the Ground, the Full Orb Gospel. The, this will be released on Reconstructionist Radio uh, over the next couple weeks when we have a slot to uh, to drop it in. Uh, so with that said, um, what we're working with in the American church today is, is pretty much a version of the truncated gospel. Um, it is a gospel that sees man, man and his needs as central uh, to the entire enterprise. It doesn't look at the Bible as a whole and see the gospel in all of its fullness and all of its glory and all of its application. Uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28 uh, says, And God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves 
on the earth. Psalm 8, 6 says, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things underneath his feet. Speaking of man, Psalm 110, which is the most quoted verse in the New Testament uh, by the apostles, says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Uh, it was a recent quote. I forget who shared it first, uh, but the American church uh, often thinks Psalm 110 really said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until the whole ship sinks, right? Um, that's the way we kind of act with uh, the application of the gospel. Uh, and of course, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and Jesus said to them, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. You see, from the beginning, Satan has been on a mission to dupe image bearers of God into forfeiting the role that we have been created to fill, usurping the authority that we have to subdue the creation with the law of the king and substituting an order based on self-worship. Uh, theologians over the centuries have labored to define the different components of what it means, what it entails, what it really means to be created in the image of God, with answers ranging from mind, will, emotions, rationality, uh, so on and so forth. Now, each of these answers do little if anything at all, to separate man is distinct from the angels and based on and are mostly based on conjecture alone, the image of God theology that's out there. Uh, but one thing we know for certain from the standard of the word of God, from the unshakable standard of the word of God, that to be created in the image of God in humankind simply means in the passages it states, it states itself that we are created to specifically multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. So to be created in the image of God, it means that we are supposed to have dominion and exercise the law word, the rule of the king over all of creation. It's a functional definition. Genesis 1, 26 through 28 is a covenant that establishes the judicial basis of the personal relationship between God and man. This covenant is essential. It is 100% essential for our relationship with God. In this format, God is the sovereign creator who creates man to function as his representative over the creation commanding us to be fruitful, multiply, to exercise dominion. This is what it means to be created in the image of God. In the ancient world, when an emperor conquered a foreign territory, they would often erect a statue of themselves uh, to denote their rule in that place. So a crime against the statue would have been seen as treason or an attempt to kill the emperor themselves, and it was punishable by death. This was a demonic imitation of the creator who put man on the earth as the sign of the rule of the kingdom of God. And any attempt to murder man, therefore, amounts to the same thing, an attempt to murder God, as futile as that is. And, by, and the results of the law of God, uh, for this is the death penalty, obviously. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. That's Genesis 9, 6. 
The link between the image of God and man is lawful dominion, and it cannot uh, be ignored. In unconditional surrender, uh, Gary North put it this way, we are told, we are not told that the image of God in man is seen in man's moral nature. We are not told that the image of God is seen in man's ability to think. Neither are we told that the fundamental act of the image of God in man is the ability to speak. All of these aspects of man's image are related to God's nature, but the essence of the image of God in man is dominion. Dominion follows God's likeness in man. That's Genesis 1.26a. So the covenant in Genesis 1.26 through 28 is regarded as the dominion covenant, or also called the cultural mandate. Because human beings are created in covenant with God to bring his ethical standard to bear in every area of life. And in doing so, maximize the potential placed in the creation itself. We are ambassadors of the creator king. And his laws are the keys to make the entire creation blossom with fruit. This dominion covenant is a mandate. It is not optional. It is not a special calling of any particular class or person or 501c3 ministry uh, special superstar or whatever the case may be, but the very purpose for which each human by nature of being in the human race is called by the word of the creator into existence. The only way mankind can exercise dominion over the earth is for God to apply his perfect ethical standard in every single area of life. So thus, the original sin of Genesis 3 was to allow the devil to lure man into defining ethics in disobedience to God, to determine good and evil apart from him. Get that. The original sin was man setting himself up as a judge between God and Satan. The law of God being judged by man who wanted to shortcut to his higher purpose. So this threw a snare into man's purpose for now. Being a God unto himself, man set himself up as this judge, you know, separating himself from the one true God. Literally in Hebrew and Greek, the meaning for the word sin means missing the mark for which you are created. The violation of God's revealed law. And this sin entered into the fallen nature of man. The basis for the relationship between God and man, the covenant, was transgressed, and man and his institutions started to look more and more and more like the image of Satan. Gary North puts it this way, man's fall was ethical. It involved active rebellion on man's part against the law of God. God had told him not to eat of the tree, but man wanted instant illumination, instant divinity. He rejected the process of time, the effect of godly, obedient labor. He rejected the thought that he would have to remain a subordinate, that he would have to acknowledge his position as a creature under God, that he would have to spend his life thinking God's thoughts after him as a creature rather than stand as a tyrant over creation, whipping creation into line as a self-made God. You have to mature over time and always as God's subordinate. By rejecting the worship of God, man inevitably accepts the worship of Satan, even when man thinks he is worshiping himself or idols or the messianic state. Now, that is absolutely huge. Satan is not 
It's not incumbent on Satan to convince us to worship the devil with the pitchfork. Any time that we reject the worship of the one true God, that we forsake the purpose that we were created to fulfill in the image of God, to exercise dominion over the face of the earth, we are worshiping Satan when we accept any other standard whatsoever. The judgments of God for transgressing his cosmic law were invoked at this Genesis 3 event. And man is in desperate need of atonement for someone to fulfill God's righteous requirements for man and to suffer the penalty for those that did not. This was, of course, done by God himself in Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity on the cross. The covenant was restored and all authority given to the resurrected king and his body on earth, the church, was commissioned to exercise dominion and subdue the entire earth once again in fulfillment of the original purpose of man created in the image of God. Now, from the beginning, as Gary North points out, men must subordinate themselves either to God or Satan uh, through their covenantal representatives. This principle of representation is throughout the scriptures. So, for example, Moses represents God while Pharaoh represents Satan and so forth. Uh, from the beginning, it has been the kingdom of God where God's perfect standard law word is obeyed. Uh, or the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of man where the subjective whims of men are imposed as law. Uh, there's never been a middle ground. There's never been a, a neutral zone. This idea that we can have this uh, area of natural law and determine from nature the wants and desires of God is a 100% myth. Whereas God created humans to be fruitful, Satan lures them into a fruitless, purposeless existence of self-satisfaction. This is why Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, we'll save it. That's Matthew 16, 25. True fruitfulness and fulfillment only comes with denying one's own wants and desires in favor of the desires in line with the ethical standard, the standard of good and evil that we get only from the heavenly king. We are to be holy as he as holy. Likewise, true spirituality isn't about spending long hours in prayer or the word, though those will occur as byproducts, but is defined by the Apostle Paul as being able to judge between good and evil in all things. 2 Corinthians 2.15, therefore, redeemed man is on a mission in the earth to institute God's rule and perfect standard of righteousness and justice identified by scripture as the foundations of God's throne, righteousness and justice in every single area of life and bring the liberation of the creator King Jesus to every aspect of man and his institutions, subduing the entire created order in his name and in contract fallen man seeks to satisfy his own desires by consuming the created order as a God unto himself and and suffers the curse of missing the mark and shares the fate of the beast. So now, now you can see why everybody in Seattle was freaking out when the abolitionists went up there with a gospel that was more, that included more than just my, my personal salvation, the destination of where I go when I die, the, the right things to believe so I don't go to hell. 
It is literally the conflict of the kingdom of the pseudo kingdom of man, of injustice and unrighteousness with the foundations of God's throne, the pillars of God's throne, righteousness and justice, no king but Jesus, his law over man's law. And, and that brings a conflict. And that is why in Acts 17, 6, the disciples were said to have turned every place upside down that they went. Uh, it's a conflict. If you're preaching the gospel and not experiencing conflict, let me share with you. You're probably not preaching the whole gospel. You're probably preaching a truncated gospel if you're not experiencing conflict 100%. So in every endeavor of life, redeem man spiritual man is to judge between good and evil by the spirit of God and act accordingly as an image bearer, striking down that which doesn't conform to the rules of the kingdom of God with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of the king. Ephesians six seventeen. since one of the pillars of God's throne is justice, we can be assured. Now listen to this. We can be assured that the root of every single injustice is idolatry or the ascribing of worth to a false God. In the first episode of uh, his groundbreaking, been a really, really, really impactful podcast for me, and I recommend it to anybody. In his first episode of Acts to the Root, uh, titled Covenantal Thinking, uh, Bojadar Marinoff teaches that it is righteous judgment that defines a spiritual and mature man. He is a man who knows the difference between good and evil and has trained his senses to discern good versus evil in everything that comes his way. So this is so vital. The life of the redeemed man as an image bearer of God is one of destroying idols, co-laboring in the spirit with Christ to set up his kingdom in all of the earth. The kingdom is where the rule of the king is instituted. Now, just as Satan tries to get man to limit his own population instead of multiply, to try to see life as a burden instead of a blessing, and to substitute his own arbitrary rule for the rule of the king, denying the authority of God and baiting man into suffering judgment as a result, Satan always, always tries to convince man that the earth belongs to him, that the very best man can hope for in terms of exercising dominion as an image bearer of God is a victory somewhere sometime in the mythical future after evil has had its way in God's world and God throws it all in the fire at the end. Look, it's beyond the scope of this message to deal with the entire timeline, but you can see this trend throughout history before Christ and especially after Satan was dealt his final defeat at the cross. Satan is great at repackaging old ways to convince the people of God that the dominion covenant actually belongs to hell for the time being, that he is the rightful God of this world, that the early church fought with this concept with the heresy of Gnosticism, which taught that the gospel is merely a secret knowledge to escape the evil physical world ruled by a lesser God. Christians eventually overcame this lie and established Western civilization based on the standard of the word of God as the rule for all of life. And there's Sophie that just woke up. Let me say, say what's up, Sophie. Yeah, hi. Hi. So 
I be this, this is applied imperfectly, of course. So Satan was able to introduce uh, the false theology of pietism uh, into the Christian landscape in the 17th century. Uh, this theology served to emphasize the gospel again as a private matter of the individual soul and personal holiness, uh, leaving the world and the cultural institutions to sinful devices. By the 20th century, Christianity was a shell of itself in the West, and humanistic elements from the Enlightenment now serve as the idols of the current age. While celebrity Bible teachers of the day propagate the culture of defeat in the churches with material that confirms uh, Satan's dominion over God's world as the Bible's true teaching, the West and all of its elements of freedom for the individual cultural advancement and prosperity uh, was the result of a world built where rulers were under the law of God and a private citizen now could walk into a courtroom and bring charges against a civil magistrate based on the word of God alone as the standard. Google the, uh, 17, uh, the 1788 sermon by Reverend, Reverend uh, Samuel Langton titled The Republic of the Israelites, an example to the American states, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Study also Samuel Rutherford's revolutionary Lex Rex in the phrase uh, from the founding, Appeal to Heaven. Uh, today, uh, while the shadows of blessing in that world still remain uh, to some degree, the circle of liberty is growing smaller and smaller, and the idea that the Bible should be the rule for the civic order is mocked by Bible teachers themselves. After all, the excuse is that defeat is inevitable this side of eternity, and that gives an easy excuse, an easy reason for not attempting to apply uh, the Dominion Covenant to the costly religious, moral, cultural battles of the day at least not in such a way that expects victory. And an army that goes into battle expecting to lose will do just that. The Bible doesn't call Satan the father of lies for no reason. Satan is always trying to dupe man, uh, dupe human beings into distorting the image of God and forfeiting the dominion cultural mandate. So is there any support whatsoever uh, for the biblical claim? Is it biblical to say that Satan is the God of the world or in what sense? Is Satan the God of the world? That's an important question. Uh, the answer is pointed out by Gary DeMar, Dr. Gary DeMar, in his, in his recent article for AmericanVision.org titled, Is Satan the God of This World? So for all practical terms and purposes, the answer is a resounding no. Uh, write down these passages for your own study, and we'll also go ahead and list them in the comment section. Uh, or the status section. So Job 1, 6 through 12, 2, 2, 1 through 7 states that Satan is merely a creature with limitations and he must be granted permission by God before he can act and even before the cross. 2 Corinthians 12, uh, 7 through 12 shows that the only power that Satan has over the Christian is the power we give him and the power granted by God. Colossians 2, 15, Revelation 12, 7, and Mark 3.27 shows that Satan is defeated, disarmed, and spoiled. Re Romans 16.20 states that Satan is under the feet of the early Christians and, of course, by proxy us as well. Uh, Colossians 1.13, no authority over Christians belong to the devil. Uh, John 16.11, Satan has been judged. 1 John 3.8, his works have been destroyed. Matthew 16.18, the gates of hell will not prevail against the advancing church in the earth. 1 Timothy 1.17, God is the king of the ages. Man. Of course, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 describes Satan as the god of the age. But to say a fallen angel is the idol of the age is a far cry from the contemporary Christian understanding that power and dominion for the current time has been granted by the risen Christ to the councils of hell. So when those brothers and sisters were up there in Seattle, 
There was a website that we were pointing people to called All Gods Must Die. So all idols of the age that require the sacrifice of man into the dominion of man must be smashed to abolish abortion. Because we're not at war with abortion. We're really at war with the worldview or the idolatry that's behind it. You're not going to get the fruit without taking the axe to the root. 100%. The Bible is clear that God is king of the ages, possessor of all authority in both heaven and on earth. And none of this authority has been delegated to the devil. Damar writes, when all the evidence is in, we learn that Satan is the God of the age, and that was passing away. So this age and this world are used in an ethical sense, denoting the immoral realm of disobedience rather than the all-exclusive, all-inclusive, extensive scope of creation, representing the life of man apart from God and bound to sinful impulses, a world ethically separated from God. Calling Satan the god of this age is more a reflection of the current of the condition of this age than the real status of the devil. Uh, John Chrysostom uh, comments that uh, this, uh, a church father obviously uh, comments that uh, uh, scripture frequently uses the term God, not in regard to the dignity that it's so designated, but the weakness of those in subjection to it. As he calls mammon, as he calls mammon Lord and the belly God, but the belly is ne- is neither therefore God nor mammon Lord, save only of those who bow themselves to them. You will not rise higher than the idols that you worship. All gods must die. The understanding that this is God's world and that the finished work of our King Jesus on the cross empowers us to fulfill the original command to subdue it in his name as image bearers of God, bringing his law to bear in all of the earth is utterly crucial for normative Christian life. This basic understanding has been lost in our era, uh, but the work of the spirit through a faithful few uh, are gaining it back. One of these men who will be remembered as a giant in history is my man, Bo Marinoff, who in his article, The True Gospel versus The Truncated Gospel, points out that the gospel, according to most modern preachers, preachers is limited to me and my salvation, my ticket to heaven, if you will. The gospel is often watered down to a short statement about individual salvation, as if the whole goal of God is to serve that need alone. That's right. The gospel of the kingdom of God relegated to where am I going when I die? Of course, the kingdom of God only makes sense within the context of a rule of a king. So therefore, modern preachers and theologians who have limited the rule of King Jesus to the special sphere of the individual human heart is exactly, exactly 100% where Satan would like to have that rule kept. Recall Hitler's famous warning to the German churches. You can save all the souls that you want, but you leave the soul of Germany to me. Yet as Marinoff points out, there isn't a single verse, not one verse in the entire Bible that limits the gospel to individual salvation. The problem is we have allowed biblical illiteracy to creep in with such a comprehensive level that we can't even understand John 3.16, which said God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, meaning that what follows, whosoever believes in his name shall not perish but have everlasting life is the means of, is the means to the end of God transforming the entire world 
the social action, establishing the pillar of God's throne, righteousness and justice in every area that the Christian sees in life, applying the perfect standard everywhere, is central to the message of the gospel. The good news of the kingdom is that Jesus' kingdom is that Jesus is king now and that we are able to fulfill the purpose we were created in the image of God to fulfill. It is a comprehensive declaration that covers every area of life. Repent, metanoia, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is certainly not limited to an eternal destination. As a matter of fact, to a first century Jew, the gospel message would have seemed a lot more like heaven coming to earth than an individual going to heaven. So you think of our central prayer, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To many contemporary Christian years, this prayer will only be answered at the way end of time or some kind of ethereal, really kind of spiritual sense right now, but never in all of its fullness, never in utter victory. There are clear places in scripture where Jesus emphasizes the gospel of the kingdom ignored and where Jesus emphasizes the gospel of the kingdom and ignores the opportunity to save souls for the higher purpose of kingdom advancement. So you can check uh, uh, Matthew 13, uh, the, four, the 40 days of his post-resurrection life on earth was spent explaining the nature of the kingdom of God to the disciples. So the central theme of the gospel has always, always, always been the kingdom, the universal rule of Christ over all power and authority on heaven and on earth comprehensive including of course eternal salvation and eternal security by those for those who believe including the elements that we actually get to commune with christ after our heart stops beating but certainly not limited to that the basis for our preaching of the gospel is the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which is universal. It is comprehensive. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And if you miss the significance, the Great Commission is the empowerment of the congregation of the Lord to operate in the image of God and fulfill the dominion mandate. This is not about snatching a few souls out of the fire. It's about throwing the works of the devil into the fire and conquering the land for our king. This is a worldwide focus of discipling the nations. In the Greek, make disciples of all nations means exactly that. Make disciples of all nations. Every nation as a whole must be discipled actively to obey what Christ has commanded. Everything of it, including the portions of the Old Testament that are abiding for today. Those portions which are permanent light and not just shadows pointing to Christ. Matthew 10, 18 simply makes sense no other way. Check this out. And you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. But do not worry how or what yours to say for to be given to you in that hour. Check out what Marinoff says. Individual salvation of men is the same for kings and common people. Why would the disciples worry about how or what they must say to kings and rulers if they were only supposed to talk about individual salvation? What is it in the testimony to kings and rulers that is any different? The only plausible answer to this question is in the comprehensive nature of the gospel. The fact that the gospel speaks to all of life and therefore it speaks to every man in his specific area of authority and dominion under God. Kings and rulers have no problem 
when their subjects are concerned with their personal salvation. The real difficulty lies in telling a king how to rule according to everything that I have commanded you. There's a uh, famous story about a Bishop Ambrose telling Emperor Theodosius when Emperor Theodosius was seeking the approval of Bishop Ambrose for a sin of slaughtering 700 uh, men of Thessalonica to uh, squash a rebellion or something like that. And he sought the approval of, uh, of uh, Bishop Ambrose, and Bishop Ambrose rebuked him. So the emperor wanted to take away, to come into his church and, and basically, uh, you know, remove uh, Ambrose from, from ecclesiastical authority and power. And Bishop Ambrose said, you don't even have the power, king, to enter into a private house. How dare you think that you can set foot and, and, and manhandle the house of God? That is a comprehensive application of the gospel. And indeed, we see as Christians... We see Christians were, were persecuted in the Roman Empire, not because they preached individual salvations. They weren't the only ones to preach it, as a matter of fact. See, Rome had a special pantheon for every new god or savior, and they were duly registered and adopted in the service of the state. But Jesus was different. Why couldn't he just be another god in the pantheon? What made him different? Why were the early per Christians persecuted for worshiping Jesus? Well, the answer is simple. Their message was not limited to individual salvation or personal life of the believer, but was a comprehensive challenge to the empire itself. No king but Jesus. In the words of the persecutors themselves, they act contrary to the degrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Acts 17.7. No king but Jesus. All gods must die. That's why they were freaking out in Seattle this past week. That's why it's all over the news cycle. That's why Abel no name, not special superstars with a bunch of money, were able to go into that city and turn it upside down, not with some kind of specialized message against abortion, but with the gospel of the kingdom of God. The Full Orb Gospel Act swung against evil, establishing the pillars of God's throne, righteousness, and justice. The contemporary American truncated version of personal salvation gospel would have gotten absolutely not one Christian persecuted by the Romans in the early church era. Not one. They would have eagerly accepted that kind of gospel in their pantheons of pantheon of gods in Rome. Most of what passes for Christianity in our culture is more in the category of a pagan mystery religion. Secret knowledge, you know, about personal holiness and the afterlife. It, it can't be overstated that the salvation of our souls is merely a step for the higher purpose of the kingdom of God. Consider Romans 8, 19 through 22. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to the corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. That's right. We're not saved for the purpose of being saved, but for the higher purpose of God's kingdom. We are to apply our liberation as sons of God to every single sphere of life, political, uh, economic, social, entertainment, every single area of life. The whole creation groans until now. We are commanded to exercise dominion over it, to subdue it according to our original design as Imago Dei, as image bearers created in the image of God. 
to our, an original covenant, the dominion mandate, plain and simple. If one does not swing the acts of the gospel of the kingdom at the idols of the age and apply the victory of Christ in every single area of life, listen to this now, they are not preaching the whole gospel. Plain and simple, the gospel upsets the apple cart of the idols. If the idols can stay in place in the face of the preaching of the gospel, it is not a full-on advancement of the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom of God. It is not a repent for the kingdom of God is at hand message. For a clear example, look at Paul's revolutionary statement about civil rulers being God's servants for the good of Christians in Romans 13, a passage often falsely used to call for blind obedience to the pagan state by modern believers. So not coincidentally, this statement flipped the pagan order of tyrannical rule by fiat on its head. A Romans 13 ruler must only be a terror to the evildoer, and the word of God clearly is the standard of good and evil. Therefore, when the civil magistrate practices evil, they abrogate their authority, and it is the duty of the Christian to rebel against them, defy tyrants. It was exactly such a statement that Rome considered, considered treasonous and fed Christians to the lions in the Colosseum for. After all, Rome considered Caesar God. Caesar could be nobody's servant, especially not Jesus of Nazareth. So nevertheless, Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. It was the founder of Pennsylvania, William Penn, who famously remarked in the new world would be either governed by God or ruled by tyrants. This plain truth is simply applying the gospel of the kingdom of God to the civic order. There is no other standard, no area of neutrality that's left acceptable for Christ's followers. Furthermore, the distinction between the law and the gospel is completely manufactured by modern theologians as the gospel of the kingdom of God, now listen to this, includes the law of the king. Imagine that. Check 1 Timothy chapter 1, 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good, for if one uses it lawfully, understand this, that the law of God is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their mothers and fathers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine and according with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God in according to the gospel in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God to which I have been entrusted Paul says notice how Paul after explaining the proper use of the law of God listen to this now in matters of criminal justice doesn't hate doesn't hesitate to add according to the gospel Paul must not have attended one of our modern seminaries. He didn't get the neat box memo message. You were supposed to truncate the gospel and put it over here and take the law of God and kick it all the way into the past. And now human beings get to make up law in their own heads by natural law, like the pagans do. Paul didn't get that message. And not only did Paul not get that message, Paul called the opposite central to the gospel. I mean, can you imagine that? Much more could be said. Hopefully, by now, it should be plain that the most of what the churches have accepted as the gospel in our culture is but a tiny sliver of it. And the fruit of the land is plain evidence of this fearful truth. The culture is religion externalized. Henry Van Til, culture is religion externalized. There is no non-religion, only true religion and false religion. Church, we must repent and get to work. 
We can take encouragement from the examples of those 70 abolitionists that descended on the city of Seattle, bringing true religion in conflict with false religion. I mean, where do we go from here? Are we just going to let this religion externalize, sit and fester the way that it is? We don't have to have every theological fact straight and every box checked and everything in order to pick up a hoe and start plowing, to get that battle axe and start swinging. You know, straight up, I tell my recon brothers and sisters, I would rather plow with a premillennial dispensationalist on the front lines than just sit around reading R.J. Rush Doom. I mean, that's straight up, not to degrade studying, but we got to get out there and we got to exercise this dominion of be obedient. Look, where do we go? First, let me give you three points of practical application in this boots on the ground segment. Uh, the full orb gospel uh, will be over. We got to commit, recommit to a mindset of sola scriptura. This was the main tenet, uh, one of the main tenets of the Protestant Reformation. Sola scriptura means that the word of God is the final authority and standard for every single area of life. It is the duty of the Christian to be spiritual and judge all in good and evil in all things. And we do this based on the word of God. There's no neutral ground, no natural law somewhere above evil, but less than the revealed word. Man cannot come to an agreement about good and evil that is righteous apart from the special revelation of God in the scriptures. Our mindset must be one of the mind of Christ and in all of life. And we must hold each other accountable in, as brothers and sisters in the Lord to a pure biblical worldview, untainted by political winds and even pet doctrines held by our favorite Bible teachers. One second, Sophie, we'll get your food in one second. All right, we need to test everything and hold fast to that which is good. <laughs> I'll do that in a second. Hold on. We got to do our best to present ourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. All scripture, all scripture, Paul speaking here of the Old Testament. That was the only scripture around at the time in, in 2 Timothy. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, re rebuking, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, uh, equipped for every single good work. Second, we must commit to living out a comprehensive gospel of the kingdom in all of life. The salvation of our souls must translate to the establishment of the pillars of God's throne. Righteousness and justice. You weren't saved as fire insurance. Righteousness and justice. The foundation of your throne. Steadfast love, Lord, and faithfulness before you. Go before you. Psalm 89, 14. So what does this look like? Start with the idol of the age of humanism and the human sacrifices of abortion. Move from there. We have 80 million professing Christians in a nation that surrenders one image bearer of God in the womb every 30 seconds. It murders one image bearer of God every 30 seconds in the holy of holies, in the mother's womb, as, as the creator is knitting them together. We don't need everyone to be agreement in the fight, but a small committed majority committed to establishing justice to the fatherless orphan in our midst will go a long way very fast. Abortion is low-hanging fruit. There are other areas where man is sacrificed into the dominion of man, in the police state, uh, in, the, in the humanistic incubation center, so on and so forth. But at least start with that low-hanging fruit and put the acts of the gospel to work and abolishing abortion with the gospel. Be led by the Spirit is how to do so. You can hit me up, uh, private message me, whatever. I'll help plug you into the fight, so on and so forth. Look, third, last, we must commit to an expectation of victory as the bride of Christ, executing the affairs of the groom, King Jesus, as his body on earth. It is not enough to be brave losers for the cause. 
Our very way of life in this country was established by our predecessors in the faith who knew that. As Bo Marinoff says, all the enemies of Christianity need Christianity in order to survive, both as individuals and as cultures. Let's stop giving ground. Let's bear the image of God in victory. Let's subdue the earth for Christ. His kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. So that concludes this War Room segment, Boots on the Ground. A lot, a lot of cool stuff to get into. Uh, we have tons of interviews that are going to be coming up. So sorry about the fact that... Um, We've been a little bit inconsistent with the episodes, and uh, there's been a lot going on. But uh, as, as we plow into the season, we look forward to putting out materials that's going to help you apply the Christian uh, worldview in every single area of life, actually out on the battlefield, not in the library room. Appreciate you. Uh, uh, no king but Jesus. Thank you for joining us in the war room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, by my soul among lions. Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.